Well, that's fun to declare, isn't it? If you have your Bible with you, how about if you open it up to Hebrews chapter 12? Before we jump into the text, I'd like to pray with you. Would you join me? Father, we declare not only that you are able, but that you are willing. And that makes all the difference. We don't serve a God who's only able and powerful, but we serve a God who's willing to intervene for us. We come in here with many thoughts on our minds, Father, as many as uh, our people in the auditorium. There are thoughts going in many different directions. We ask right now that you would give us the ability to focus, that we would hone in and zone in on you, and that your word would speak. We know that your word is alive and active, but we invite it right now to speak to us, and that through the power of your Holy Spirit, who is in this auditorium, in the presence of God's people, that you would use this time not only to teach us, Father, but to shape us. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. So after 12 chapters and 24 weeks in the book of Hebrews, you may not have been here for all of them, but we've been working our way through the book of Hebrews. Um, 24 weeks now, we could definitely say that we have arrived at the point where we know Jesus is better. You don't sound convinced. We would arrive at the point where we know that Jesus is better. So we would also say we understand it's not enough to know Jesus is better. We have to actually understand that it has to become part of our daily life. It has to affect because truth without application really is of no purpose whatsoever. I didn't write this, it's an unknown author who said this, just this sentence about the Bible in regards to your walk with Christ, if you're a believer in Christ. He said, it's not enough to know how we should live, we must actually live what we know. Now we started in week one in Hebrews, understanding that Hebrews is full of theology. There's a lot to learn about God, and it's it's just packed full of doctrine. But on the opposite side, we would say, man, is it full of exhortation meaning calling us to a standard of what God expects of us. So you've got theology on one side, which some people would say, wow, it's, it's much heavier on theology. Other people would say, it's heavier on exhortation. Well, I would say you're both right. It is theology and it is exhortation. But we come to this morning's chapter, chapter 12, understanding that if all Scripture is inspired of God, if it comes from Him directly to man, we would have to say that these therefores that pass, the passage starts out with, and there's lots of therefores, those therefores are His therefores. So we therefore best pay attention because He has expectations of us. So chapter 12 is clearly exhortation and theology together. And I'll just tell you up front, it's going to seem fractured to you this morning because the author reaches everything from Genesis to Revelation in 15 very fast-moving verses. And so we're going to cover the whole gamut this morning. So we're going to do something a little bit different than what we typically do. We're going to paint with really broad brush strokes because we've got a big canvas to cover this morning, Genesis to Revelation. So let's dig in, and we understand what he's doing here. He's, he's, he's making his closing arguments. Chapter 13 is the last one. So we're finishing chapter 12 this morning, and it starts out this way in verse 12. Therefore... Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint 
but rather be healed. I don't know what standard version of the Bible that you have in your laps in front of you this morning, but if you have an English standard version, it's going to be like this on the screen, and you might want to just pencil in your Bible where the word your is at, the word the, because this is really being written specifically to the mature believers who need to strengthen those who are weak in their midst. So you could literally say, therefore, lift the drooping hands and strengthen the weak knees, speaking to those who are more mature, to those who are weaker, who need to be strengthened. So this very first section is about your obligation to other people in the church, your obligation to others. And when he speaks about being healed in the end of verse 13, he's not talking about physical healing. He's talking about spiritual healing, people who are struggling. Why? Because in context, we've learned that these Hebrews are close to shrinking back. They've come to the place where they understand who Jesus is. Some of them have actually committed their life to Christ, but others are tempted to run back to Judaism because Rome isn't killing the Jews. Rome is killing the Christians. And they're living in a world in which they're watching their brothers and sisters being thrown to the lions. And they're thinking, this is not a safe place. And although they hear about Jesus and they read about Jesus, they're thinking, that's not where I want to go. I'm going to run the other direction. And so he's talking to them about strengthening those who are weak, and he plays off from Greek literature. If you're familiar with the Greek language at all, you'll, you'll hone in on this verse when he says, put out of joint. And here's why. Because in the first century world, they had roads, very good road systems that the Romans had built which expanded throughout the Roman Empire. Not as beautiful as our roads today. Their roads were full of potholes <laughs> and, and rocks. Now, if you live in a world in which you ride horses or you walk or perhaps you're lucky enough to own a donkey, you don't want potholes in the road. You don't want things you can trip over that might cause you to fall and put a hip out of joint or a knee out of joint or break an ankle. So he's playing off from Greek literature this period of time and understanding you don't want a rough path. Help those who are weak, who are in danger of falling by strengthening them. So the emphasis really on strengthening the hands and on strengthening the knees. In other words, don't just concentrate on your own weakness. Help strengthen others. He's playing off from Isaiah 35. He's literally quoting Isaiah. Look with me on the screen. Isaiah 35.1. Encourage the exhausted. Strengthen the feeble. Say to those with anxious hearts, take courage. Fear not. Behold, your God will come. In other words, don't give up. Just because things look rough, a better day is coming. Victory is ahead. Now, I know this. One of the surest ways to be encouraged yourself is to encourage other people. You come along somebody who's struggling who needs to be encouraged, and you begin speaking into their life, pretty soon you start feeling better because you're watching that person's burden being lifted, and you start being encouraged yourself. So encouraging other people encourages yourself. That's what he wrote in Hebrews 10.25. Encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, what day? Well, we'll talk about that in just a moment. Now, so verse 12 is talking about lifting the drooping hands. In other words, remove the stumbling blocks, things that would cause other people to stagger. So our purpose, we've already established, is not only to teach truth, but also to encourage people to live up to the truth. So here's his exhortation. His primary target for these Hebrews is that they would take these words of exhortations and apply them to their life. And you're going to see in two weeks, he's going to close it out this way, Hebrews 13, 22. But I urge you, brethren, bear with this word of exhortation, meaning he's calling to the high standard. Here's the implication. Someone in their midst 
multiple people probably, are spiritually paralyzed. They've come to a point where their hands are slack, their knees are weak, and they're not sure they can take it anymore. So he's calling the mature believers to be like a physical trainer. Set a high bar for those who are under your care and call them to a high standard. Move forward with me because that was obligation to others. Now let's look at our obligation to ourselves. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now at first glance when you look at that you think, man, he's talking about salvation by works. That's what it sounds like, like we're supposed to earn something. Pursue peace, pursue holiness, and we're good? Understand, this is not what he's talking about. First of all, a person who is not saved, who is not a believer in Jesus Christ, can never successfully achieve peace in their life. And they can certainly never achieve holiness. So we're talking about believers here. Only a believer has the capacity through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life to pursue peace and holiness. Because according to God's word, any righteousness I try and do on my own is like dirty laundry. God literally said that in the Old Testament. Your righteousness is like filthy rags. So don't try and do it on your own. You've got to do it through the power of the Holy Spirit working through you. So because you and I, a proper view of this, because we're at peace with God, presuming you're a believer in Jesus, because we're at peace with God, we're supposed to be peacemakers. Because we are counted as the righteous of God, we should live righteously. In other words, your position has to match up with what you say your position is, has got to match up with your practice. Let your position match your practice. Verse 14 says, chase it down, literally to the point where you tackle it, pursue, strive after it. Now, this is not irrelevant in 2014. You might look at it and say, yeah, well, that really applies to those Hebrews who were under Romans persecution. Let me ask you this. How many times in the course of your life have you heard someone have this conversation with you? Yeah, I used to be in church. I used to be interested in the things of church. Man, it is so full of hypocrites. Those people fight constantly. I mean, they're, they're not at peace with each other. Who wants that? Who wants to be part of that? Well, those people have had stumbling blocks put in their way. We're, what is our goal here? Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone. Not just believers in Christ, but literally everyone. Every person on planet Earth, strive for peace with them. Now, there's a few arguments that come up when you say something like that to people. First of all, I hear this argument. People are really abrasive, Mark. I mean, some are so selfish. Well, we have to look in the mirror first, see if that's us that we're talking about. I understand. People are selfish. People are abrasive. You drive the roads of Michigan very long, you're going to run into abrasive, selfish people. And I would say I've been there myself. I have literally have caused people to think I'm probably selfish. We all inadvertently cut people off in traffic. We can say people are abrasive, but there's two goals here that he's speaking of that remind us of Jesus. Jesus is known as the king of peace, the king of righteousness. So if we belong to him, we're supposed to be striving to be like him. Here's the expectations. William Barclay said it this way. Although he lives in the world, the man who is holy, and and that's you if you're a believer in Christ, God sees you as holy, the man who is holy must always in one sense be different from the world and separate from the world. His standards are not the world's standards. So here's the second argument. Pursuing peace is a two-way street mark. I mean, both parties have to be on the same page. You only have to look at Israel and the Gaza Strip to understand that. 
Well, that's true, but Paul put a nice cork in that bottle when he said this in Romans 12, 18. If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That verse tells me you're not always going to get along with everybody, right? We just aren't, and that that includes believers in Christ. We aren't always going to get along with other believers in Christ. There are differences. So Paul says, if it's possible, get along so far as it depends on you. In, In other words, we are responsible for our side of the process. Now think about what these Hebrews had to deal with in the first century. They've received this really hard note from the writer of Hebrews who said to pursue peace. That means towards their local government who's willing to throw them into the Colosseum. That means with the unbelieving Jews who are at the synagogue who have cut them off. That means even believers who are Gentiles, who are from another culture, another tradition. He's calling them to be at peace with those people. Here's here's a third argument I hear from people. If others don't live peaceably, then that's their problem. It's not my problem. Here's the counter to it. It's not our excuse not to pursue peace just because others are not willing to live peaceably. Because I read somewhere, and I can't remember where, love your enemies. I don't know who said that, though. Love your enemies. So in context, here we go, verse 15. He continues this thought, caring for one another. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought for it with tears." I don't know if you grew up in an Episcopal church. Some of you probably, I know a few of you did. You might be very familiar with this concept of see to it because it's this Greek word, episkopantes. It's where we get the word episcopal from. Episcopantes means see to it. It's talking about the, the role of a bishop. If you're not familiar with the role of a bishop, you might be familiar with the role of an elder. We have elders here at the church. And we're not talking about the office of an elder. We're talking about the role, the responsibility. What is the role? It's an overseer, someone who is responsible to other people. So that's what a bishop did. That's what an elder does, meaning you and I have oversight of each other, helping each other grow in holiness. To what degree? Verse 15, so to the degree that no one fails to see the grace of God, to obtain the grace of God. Now, you might come to that and say, wait, wait. I thought if I'm a believer in Christ, I already have the grace of God. How could that be? I've already experienced that in my life. I didn't think that could be removed. Well, understand, he's talking to believers who have a responsibility to oversee those who are in danger of running away. And we've got this stewardship responsibility. Know this. It is possible for a seed of bitterness to be sown in a community like this. I'm not speaking specifically of New Hope, but it's possible in a church setting for some seed of bitterness to be sown And and though it's not immediately visible, in time, bitter fruit is produced. Infighting happens, and the effects of bitterness are never, ever localized just to one, two, three, or four people. Pretty soon, it spreads throughout the entire community. 
causing bitterness to everyone. And verse 15 says, and by it many be defiled, meaning our actions and our attitudes can cause other people to walk away and say, I want nothing to do with that. I have no interest in that. Those people are at war with each other. So it's an awesome responsibility that we're given here in verse 15. So he gives us a contrast, and he says, here's the opposite. Here's what you don't want. You don't want to be like Esau. Now, I'm going to give you a a few reading assignments this morning, and whether you choose to read them later this afternoon is up to you. But Genesis 25 and 27, Genesis 25, Genesis 27, tells the story of Esau. Don't read it now, but write it down in your notes, okay? It's a fascinating story about this guy and his responsibility to God. But he's telling us, don't be like Esau. Why? Because Esau was not interested in what God was doing in his life. He had no interest in the things of God in this moment. Scripture actually calls him a profane person, a person who was outside God's temple, who wasn't interested in what God was doing in that moment, even though he could see it right in front of him. So verse 16 uses a really scary phrase about him. Verse 16 says, Esau was unholy. How'd you like to have God say that about you? That's a scary term. Put it in context, though. Esau's grandfather is Abraham. Esau's father is Isaac. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Esau are born to Isaac. Meaning Esau grew up hearing about the miracles about what God did in his grandfather's life, seeing it in his father's life, hearing about the blessings, the promises, watching the family fortune grow exponentially. And he's willing to walk away from that. So God says he's an unholy person. This is a person who had great light. He knew God's word. He knew the promises. He'd seen the miracles, but he's determined to turn his back on what God's trying to do in his life. Why? Because he doesn't have the capacity to recognize the value of what God has offered him. He's more interested in instant gratification, the rewards for the moment. And that caused him to overlook the importance of what God's offering. What was God offering? Just here's the story in short. He was the firstborn. Meaning in the Middle East, the firstborn is the heir to the throne. In other words, his dad's empire. He was going to inherit everything. All the family fortune was coming his way. And we're told according to Scripture, he despised his birthright and he sold it for a cheeseburger. Don't look for cheeseburger in there. It doesn't say that. He sold it for a bowl of soup. Literally, the price of a cheeseburger. He's willing to give up everything. Why? He was out out in the woods working for the day, working in the field, came in the house. He was hungry. And his brother said, I'll feed you, but let's trade. Esau said, what do you want? He said, I'll I'll give you some of my best soup. You give me your birthright. Okay. He despised what God had offered him. He thought so little of what God was doing in his life. He couldn't even see his way through the forest at that moment. So the truth is, the whole world is a cheeseburger. There is nothing that the world has to offer you that can compare with who and what Jesus is and what he offers you. So Esau is this huge warning flag on your dashboard. 
Don't be like Esau and live for the low things. Set the high bar. Chase after what Jesus is bringing to you. Now, if you read the story later today, you'll see he tried to change the events. Afterwards, he thought, oh, what a fool I was. And he went back and with tears, he pleaded to change the events. But it's not that the forgiveness wasn't there. It's just that the the decision was irreversible. And he had to live with the consequences of his choice. We come into this last section, and I know you're going to ask this question in your mind. Is this guy speaking in code that I don't understand? What's going on here? Well, know this. This last section is about uh, knowing truth, knowing, knowing what's right, which leads to right doing. Let's go into it. Verse 18, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further message be spoken to them, for they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. So he paints this terrifying picture of Mount Sinai. And Mount Sinai is the experience that the children of Israel had after they left Pharaoh in Egypt. They went out into the wilderness, and they're standing at the base of Mount Sinai. And it's a day that is unique in all of human history. You can read about it in Exodus chapter 19, after you read Genesis 25 and 27, of course. But you can read about it in Exodus 19, this day that is unique. And here's what he's speaking of, this moment of gravity and terror in the midst of the giving of the law. The people were so terrified not only to be in God's presence, but just to hear God's voice. They literally did this. Please make him stop. They collapsed to the ground, covering their ears, saying, we can't bear to hear his voice any further. Matter of fact, we get an insight here that's not told anyplace else in the Bible, except in Hebrews. We're told that even Moses, who walked with God, who talked with God in the wilderness. He was full of fear and trembling. That that tells me that just when you think you've got God figured out, there's a whole lot more to God than what we understand. Moses thought, and he came to this moment full of fear and trembling. What does the writer say in verse 18? He says, you haven't come to, and then he makes this laundry list for us, The opposites. You have not come to blazing fire. You have not come to darkness. You have not come to gloom. You have not come to the tempest. You have not come to the sound of a trumpet. You have not come to a voice. Do you know that God even set boundaries for the animals in that moment? He said, if you've got a dog, you better keep him on a leash. There are guardrails around the base of Mount Sinai, and no one can touch it or come into my presence. So if you've got oxen, if you've got turkeys, don't let them come near me. Why? Because God is impressing the seriousness of, of the law on the people. A covenant is being established. A covenant of judgment and a covenant of fear. Do this and experience my blessing. Do that and experience my wrath. So the contrast is this. Sinai is a physical mountain. You can see it today. You can touch it. You can walk on what historians believe is the literal Mount Sinai that God came down on. And in the midst of it, he demonstrated physical power, thunder, lightning, and he made the earthquake, Scripture says, a violent earthquake. The purpose in it was to show the absolute unapproachableness of God, that sinful man could not come near him. So to stand at the foot of Mount Sinai in that moment 
is to stand under judgment and under fear and terror, understanding the unapproachableness of God. Why? Because the law demands and the law condemns and the law punishes. But his contrast for us is that is not the mountain that you have come to. That is not the mountain. He contrasts Mount Sinai and the giving of the law with what we have today because Jesus is better. Because what Jesus offers on Mount Zion, and Zion is the picture of Jesus. Look with me at verse 22. Jesus is better. Mount, uh, verse 22, chapter 12. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in feastal gathering and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. You have come to Mount Zion. What a relief to move from Sinai to Zion to understand God's grace because Sinai symbolizes the law. Everybody understood. As soon as he used the illustration Sinai, They're thinking the law, but when he uses the word Zion, they're thinking grace. See, it's the opposite of Sinai. It's not touchable. Sinai was touchable, but it is approachable. It is absolutely approachable. And then he describes for us the inhabitants of Zion, those who are called to God. Look with me at the list. He says there are innumerable angels there in verse 22. They can't be counted. And then he mentions someone else in verse 23, the firstborn of the assembly. Who is that? The firstborn of the assembly, the firstborn in the Bible is a title of dignity and rank. God calls you the firstborn. You are the people of dignity and rank. The firstborn of the assembly. What's the assembly? The church He says your names are written there, present tense. That's consistent with what Jesus said. Look with me at Luke chapter 10 because in Luke chapter 10, here's what's going on. The disciples had just gone out and cast out demons and they came back and told Jesus about their experience. They said, look at what we did and what the Spirit did through us. And Jesus said, don't rejoice over that. Luke 10, 20, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are recorded in heaven. See, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, your name is already in the roll book. It's not something to be done in the future when you earn your way there. It's there if you're a follower of Jesus. Well, who else is there? We're told the Old Testament saints, that's the spirits of men who are judged righteous, according to that passage. Who else is there? God the Father. Jesus Christ, the mediator there. And then in verse 24, we discover something profound, absolutely mind-boggling. It says that Jesus' blood talks. Jesus' blood speaks better things than that of Abel. Now, you might ask yourself this question, what does Jesus' blood speak to me today? What does that look like? Well, let's think first about Abel's blood because the author brought it up. What's the deal with Abel's blood? Well, after you read Genesis 25 and 27 and Exodus 19, go back and read Genesis 4. 
Genesis 4 is the story of the very first murder on planet Earth. Cain killed his brother Abel. God shows up and says to Cain, where's your brother? You know the response. Am I my brother's keeper? God says to Cain, what did you do? Your brother's blood screams to me from the ground. What does Abel's blood speak? Or in this case, God said, screams, vengeance, retribution. And God indeed carried out vengeance and retribution on Cain. Put a mark on him, sent him out into the wilderness. God punished him for what he did. So we're told Jesus' blood speaks better things than that of Abel. What does it speak to me today? Mercy, forgiveness, salvation. How great is our God? Jesus' blood speaks better things than vengeance. Jesus' blood speaks better things than retribution. Jesus' blood speaks mercy, forgiveness, permission to enter into God's presence. Because Jesus' blood frees me from the law. I don't have to be at Mount Sinai. I belong to Mount Zion. And so therefore, I can enter into God's presence without fear and without terror. Were it not for Jesus' blood, I couldn't enter God's city and neither can you. Without Jesus, it's not possible. So his answer to this in verse 25 is, don't be like Esau. See to it. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. Verse 26, at that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. The him who is speaking, do you notice it's written in present tense? It's because God is still speaking. Now, many people who are not believers in Jesus would say, I'd believe, I'd believe if I could hear God's voice speak to me. Now, first of all, I'm thinking, probably you don't want that Moses experience. I'm not sure that you would respond in the way that you think you would respond if you could hear God's voice thunder from heaven. But know this, the truth of the Scripture, of the Bible, of God's Word is that He does still speak today. He speaks through his word, and he speaks through the world. Now, after you've read Genesis 25 and 27, and you've read Exodus 19, and you read Genesis chapter 4, then you should read Romans chapter 1. Because Romans chapter 1 is all about God speaking and him saying, Here I am, pay attention. I've put my fingerprint all over creation. The created world is evidence that I am and that I exist. So spend time in Romans chapter 1 and understand that that is God saying, here I am. I want you to know who I am. God still speaks. Matter of fact, our very first week in Hebrews, in our study, I think 24 weeks ago if you were here, we learned this. Hebrews 1.1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days, has spoken to us in his Son. What Jesus has done at the cross and is doing through salvation in your life shouts to people God's mercy, God's salvation. So know this, his word is alive and it's active. And for that reason, we can't neglect it. We can't fail to pay attention to what he's saying. So here's the author's point. If God shook things at Sinai, and he did, 
It was a massive earthquake. And those who refused to hear him were judged. How much more responsible are you and I today who have God's entire word in front of us? If you don't own a copy of God's word, we got free Bibles in the back. Take one with you when you leave today. They're on that table back there. Take one with you when you leave so you have a copy of God's word. Let him speak to you. This is what his word says, Hebrews 10, 28. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? We're really talking about accountability. We've got the full story. If they were held accountable at Mount Sinai, how much more accountable will we be held? Here's the last portion. Verse 26 says, At Sinai, God shook the earth and caused everyone to be in fear. Verses 25 and 26 says, From heaven, in the last days, he's going to shake the entire universe, physically shake everything. Now, we might ask ourselves this question, is God shaking things today? Because it sure feels like it. If you've looked at the news lately, you, you feel like things are really being shaken And we're coming to this point where we understand daily the non-permanent things of this world can crumble. What we thought was permanent is not permanent. And what appears to be permanent is dismantled very, very quickly. Revelation 6, if you can think back to the time when I taught on that, talks about the last days. Revelation 6 says this, verse 12, the sun will become black, the moon will become like blood, stars will fall to the earth, The sky will split apart like a scroll, and every mountain and island will be moved out of its place. Truth is, as events draw nearer to that time, and we frankly don't know if that's 500 years away or five years away. We may feel like it's going to happen in our lifetime, but we don't know. But as events draw nearer to that time, we're going to see more shaking of this world. Now, think back to what we thought in the last 10 years about our world Our inhabitants of planet Earth thought the same thing in World War II. And the inhabitants of the Earth thought the same thing in World War I. But over the course of the last hundred years, you'd have to acknowledge things seem to be amping up. What's going on? Things are being shaken. In the midst of that shaking, a follower of Jesus can be confident because we belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken, one that is permanent. Come with me into this last verse, verse 27. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. Peter reminds us, he says, it's going to come like a thief in the night. You aren't going to expect it. Boom, it's going to be here. And everything physical, things which can be shaken, will be destroyed. What's going to remain? Only the eternal things. Three things that I know of for sure. God's word, because God says, my word will endure forever. Heaven and earth may pass away, but my word will not pass away. Number two, your salvation. You are secure for eternity. That will not be shaken. Why? Because number three, you belong to an eternal kingdom, which cannot be shaken. It's unchangeable. It's immovable. So we come to the last verse. Therefore, here's your exhortation. Therefore, Let us be grateful. I could stop right there, church. Could you? Just to say thank you. 
Let us be grateful. We don't belong to Sinai. We belong to Zion. Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So, how should we walk out of here this weekend? Our God is a consuming fire. Yeah. Have a nice weekend. <laughs> that, that would be truth without application, right? But that, that's a truth. God is a consuming fire. His word says so. But it goes beyond just have a nice week. What we do as we live in a shaking world really causes other people to watch us. People who are not believers are looking at you, if you are a believer, and they're wondering, where does your confidence come from? If you have confidence. Well, first of all, we're told, number one, what we're supposed to be doing is be grateful. Verse 28, be grateful for what God has given you. Number two, the second thing is, the right response after being grateful is worshiping. Now, I'm not just talking about what Michael does when he leads us in worship. We're talking about how we give, how we support the church, how we support the work of God, how we give of ourselves, how we give our time, how we give our resources, how we serve each other, how the mature strengthen the weak. That's all worship, how we fellowship together. All those things bring glory to God. So we be grateful and we be worshipers. That's what it's telling us. Now, here's how you can leave this morning. Don't be distracted. Don't be distracted or frightened by the tremendous changes going on around you because it is going to continue this way. While others are frightened, you can be confident. And when people ask you why you're confident, you can tell them, because Jesus is better. I know the way. I know the truth, and I know the life. Let's pray. Father, we're about to walk out these doors and resume our life. We would willingly say we put it on hold to hear from you. And having examined your word and your spirit having moved in this auditorium and having heard, we would ask that you would help us to translate these truths into action in our life. For those of us who lack gratitude, Father, I, I would ask that you can do this through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would increase an attitude of thankfulness in us. And for, Father, for those of us who have not been confident, remind us of these truths this morning. We have a reason to be confident. And, Father, lastly, I would ask that you help us to be better worshipers, that we would worship you in spirit and in truth because we do believe Jesus is better. It's in his mighty name that we pray. Amen.